0: Ska is an essential part of my own music journey. Growing up in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, I was surrounded by a fantastic variety of local ska and punk bands. Seeing the Aquabats at my first ever show, where they opened for Blink-182, and then being able to see the band MU-330 regularly, my gateway into Ska was immediately fantastic. I attended a local music festival called Ska-O-Rama, more than once, and my own punk band regularly played with ska bands. I moved away from being a rabid consumer of ska music in my late teens, but gravitated back in late 2020 when I learned about the forthcoming book called In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes, which was released in May of 2021. I reached out to Aaron and got to interview him for another podcast that I make focusing on the Canadian punk band Propagandy. But we struck up a friendship as his In Defense of Ska podcast, co-hosted with Adam Davis from the bands Link-80, Dessa, and currently of Omnigon, which has complimented the book now for closing in on 200 episodes, took off and landed interview after interview with fantastic varieties of guests. 2024 brings a new second edition titled In Defense of Ska, Ska Now More Than Ever Edition from Clash Books. Head to clashbooks.com to order In Defense of Ska, and be sure to check out the complimentary podcast, In Defense of Ska. I am so delighted to bring you this conversation about the second edition of In Defense of Ska with author Aaron Carnes. Aaron Carnes, welcome to New Books Network in music. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Aaron, I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners out there so they know sure. who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Aaron Carnes. Uh, I've been a music journalist since about 2009. Uh, in 2021, I pre- I released a book called In Defense of Ska. I guess you could say I wrote it because I've, I've been a longtime Ska fan and I've been a longtime music journalist. And I think through the course of being a music journalist, I really got a good sense of how dismissed Ska was, and I I think I just really made me want to, uh, you know, give Ska like a a proper book and stuff. When I start, like a few months before the book was released, I started a podcast called In Defense of Ska. Its intention was primarily to promote the book, and, you know, a lot of it was probably driven by the fact that we were in a pandemic, and I didn't really know, A, how to promote a book, but also B, how to promote a book while not being able to go places physically, so i decided on a podcast i took a podcast class <laughs> what <laughs> oh my gosh amazing uh which i don't think was super helpful although i think the one thing that was helpful for is the 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 intro the format that we have i got from that class it was like a little bit of music me doing this sort of like introduction adam and i chit-chatting a little bit and then going into the interview i, I kind of got that from the class and it's funny cause now I listen to like more podcasts than I did back then. And I see like, Oh, a lot of people actually don't do it that way. They're actually like, Hey, they bullshit for like, uh, you know, 10 minutes and then yeah. they talk and I'm like, I don't like that. I like, tell me what the episode's about and jump into the episode. And I, so I guess my, uh, the money I paid for that podcast class was worth it for that. We, our first episode, uh, I mean, it'll already be out by the time this episode's out, but our first episode, um, on our new, with our new network consequences is, uh, dropping in a few days and like we like retooled our intro a little bit too oh cool just to even kind of more hone in on that sort of um professional I I guess it's what's interesting is the podcast is it it is free form you know interview but I it's like a middle ground between being very structured and being like letting a letting a conversation go where it needs to go because I have very very like like detailed outline of where I want it to go. And 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 I have an arc in mind and I have a pretty clear interview, like intro setup, but yeah, you know, stuff still goes in chaotic directions too. So
0: Aaron, let's, let's chat about some, uh, some sky here real quick. Uh, yes. you're also a musician. You, you played drums in a band called flat planet in the nineties. And, you know, you were on some, some compilations and did some touring and did some roadieing, but you know, I'm curious about your what's your earliest memories of ska are like take me back to like kind of the very beginning of your origin and this genre of music that you've spent your life documenting
1: uh the first time that i was aware of something called ska was in 92 when i went and saw skank and pickle play at a venue in santa clara california called one step beyond i don't know exactly why I went there. I feel like a someone I knew, because I was into underground music and punk and, like, the funk metal stuff. So somebody cued me cued me in on, like, oh, check out this band, Skank Pickle. They were basically local. I mean, I lived in Gilroy. They, lived, they were from, like, um, San Jose Los Gatos, which is about a half-hour apart. And uh, I was totally blown away. Um, you know, full horn section, the style of music I didn't really understand anything about. But also they played, like every style, you know, they played reggae, funk, you know, punk, all that stuff. But I was just like, I was like a fan. I was sold. I was on board. I did a deep dive like immediately. And I've just kind of shifted my interest towards ska. But the the funny thing is, and this is something that I've like realized more in like the last like three or four years. I don't know why it took me this long to realize it, but I was already a fan of fishbone Mm -hmm. and i was a fan of mr bungle their first Mm. record and both of you know fishbone you know obviously they played a lot of ska i mean they played a lot of other stuff too and they often weren't like necessarily called ska they were called alternative particularly in the 90s so i didn't really think about fishbone having like these different styles that they were playing it was just like it's fishbone they just all they're just crazy right and then mr bungle same thing like i loved that first record so much when it came out I just thought it was like, okay, they're going to this like crazy carousel sections. That's how I thought of it. But now it's like, I realized those are ska sections. They were playing ska. And we even interviewed uh, Trevor Dunn, the bassist recently. And uh, yeah, we went into the, you know, we went into detail about their ska history and <laughs> them falling in love with Fishbone and being really into like bad manners and oingo boingo. So, I mean, it was intentional. It wasn't you know, it really is very legitimate, like Ska stuff happening on that first record. So I just I just think back how funny it was that I was already into this music. Just I didn't have no language for it or understand it as a separate genre until that Skank Pickle show.
0: For me, my first memories of Ska would definitely be, um you know, Real Big Fish, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, partially, no doubt, Sublime. Uh, you know, watching MTV and VH1 in 1994, 1995, like that kind of era, uh, the impression that I get music video from Mighty Mighty Boss Tone stands out hugely in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. Same with the same with the Sublime videos, and uh, and then um, Sellout by um, Real Big Fish, you know. So. These things and my first ever show ever in my whole life was Blink One Eighty Two on the Dude Ranch Tour with Travis Barker playing drums for the Aquabats who opened for Blink One Eighty Two in February of nineteen (laughs) ninety eight. So for me, um, I got ska immediately in my my first ever live show, you know? So I mean it's a pretty it's a pretty important thing whenever I think about the history of my own history within music as well as a fan.
1: Yeah. How old are you? Uh cuz you are a little younger than me so you kind of came to ska more as it was a mainstream genre, right?
0: Yes, I just turned 40 in November oh. of 2023. So I was uh you know 14 years old um seeing that uh Blink 182 Aquabats show in 98 and my dad took me and my two friends. So uh I was there, you know, I saw Travis Barker in the Baron Von Tito costume uh back there ripping it up for the Aquabats.
1: Yeah, I'm 48, so I I think that my book and my podcast reflects my experience a little bit more. And that's that I came to ska while it was an underground genre yeah, and got really into it as it was growing away from the mainstream and then watched it become a mainstream genre and had very negative feelings about that. So, but I mentioned, you know, a lot of people I talk to that are your age, they come to ska through it as a mainstream genre and then they dig deeper. And so, they a lot of them feel like, well, yeah, there's better bands than X, Y, Z that were on the radio, but if it wasn't for these bands, I wouldn't have discovered the other stuff. And so, and I, I, I can kind of understand that, and and it's kind of like opened up my own perspective about the role that ska, being a mainstream genre, has had. Oh, totally. And for me, another huge one is a uh, time
0: bomb by Rancid, and then realizing that Rancid was used to be Operation Ivy. Yeah. So for me, like that 1994... 1995, that, that window is so, so important for me. And I'm, I'm sure that if there's anybody out there who's 40, who knows ska, like me, that's probably their exact same entry point as well. So that's pretty cool to think about, you know, just the differences in your experience in mm-hmm. mine. And now yeah, we're like exactly <laughs> eight, eight years apart. And just seeing that little differential. I love it. Um, so, you know, for there are people out there who might be listening to this conversation who have only listened to Ska, maybe only heard one or two Ska songs in their life. Most likely the ones that they can think of would be the impression that I get by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and maybe a No Doubt song or Sublime song. And I'm wondering if you can just give a, a sort of a potted description, for lack of a better term, of the waves of okay. Ska that happened since its origin. Kind of like tell listeners about their like a little bit about the fluctuation throughout time.
1: Great. I love this question because I have a different perspective than I think is sort of the common narrative about the waves. And also, I'll say this, I use the term ska pretty liberally, Mm -hmm. but um, ska, I think of more as like like a major genre category, like rock or jazz. So much about ska is about its subgenres and... all falls within that ska sort of major category but when we're speaking about ska what it really is as when ska is ska just like it is jamaican ska from 19 late 1950s to early 60s that is ska it is a form of music that predates rocksteady and predates reggae um it incorporated a lot of different things like an incorporated jazz and incorporated american r b particularly like the um new orleans kind of the grittier version of r b and uh mento which is sort of more like a folk music um from jamaica so these elements sort of kind of like organically created jamaican ska and um it had an upbeat sound it wasn't like particularly political the way reggae became and it wasn't complete it wasn't so like love stricken the way rocksteady was but it it also sort of Evolved at a time when Jamaica was uh, had its independence. So I'm sure that sort of impacted its uh, joyful sound, its dance, dancey sound. But you know, Jamaica, Jamaica's a land where you know something comes up and they move on to something different. And that's been the story of ska, you know. So everything that we think of and we're talking about that's not Jamaican ska, I call it you know, I don't really call it this publicly, but I think of it as ska revival because it all Mm. stems from two-tone ska, which is, um, you know, from late, late seventies, England, the specials, the selector madness, these bands, primarily the selector, if you're looking at the real origin and Jerry Dammers, the keyboard player, they were consciously taking these old ska records from like the 60s that were out and around at record stores you know in 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 England and they were deliberately like mixing them with the punk and the alternative and post-punk music that was happening in England at that particular time it was a very thought it was something that was very thought about like like let's you know initially the specials were were trying to mix reggae and and punk because reggae was very popular and punk both of these things were very political, and they were very popular. Reggae was popular with punks, and they they just couldn't really make the energy of these sounds work together. And so Jerry was like, "Let's let's go back further and mix it with ska and rocksteady and early skinhead reggae." And that's basically what you have with the specials and and sort of hmm. the ska revival scene is that conscious effort. And you know, let's make it. Let's be political. Let's let's be very political. Uh, let's address what's happening right now in England, which a lot of the music does. Some of the stuff you listen to, two-tone ska stuff, and you're like, yes, I know exactly what they're talking about. And I feel it. Some of it, you're like, what are they talking about? Because <laughs> they were addressing very specific issues of their time and place. So there's so a lot of people like to call that second wave. And then they say third wave. It was 90s ska. I, don't, I think this is where I feel like we need to depart on the common narrative because I see it as ska revival. And ska revival, what ska revival did was it birthed a whole new uh, global sort of ska movement, if you will. And within that movement, you see all sorts of subgenres being birthed. And it's all happening, you know, it's all happening at once, really. I mean, yes, a little bit later, you see ska core and other things like that. But really, people are taking ska. Two-Tone has shown people that you could sort of mix ska with other things, and they're just taking it in every direction mm-hmm. because it's, it's been the new, it's been the new established version of ska because Jamaican ska really wasn't something that spread globally to the extent that two-tone ska did two-tone ska got all over the world. It was very, very popular in England. It was top 40 music, um, tapes and and CDs found their way all over, all over the planet in the U S it was, um, wasn't that big. It was kind of a culty thing, but you know, people in America in New York and LA that just like love weird British stuff, they ate it up. Yeah. And a lot of those people started bands and they kind of created scenes in their own cities. And, you know, it took a while before it like really caught on in the US. Something that
0: I, I love that you just said is the the you mentioned like ska core and things like that and the way that it branches out. Like I remember seeing one of my first shows uh was like the Toasters. Um, mm-hmm. in like, you know, the early two thousands and big D and the kids table was opening up. So like you, I was seeing this, this, um, generational divide between like this, like late seventies sound from New York city mixed with like what, be, what came later. And I love the way that, uh, the world's kind of blended right before my very eyes, if that makes sense, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, like some important bands from my point of view, in terms of their different takes on ska were like fishbone obviously who played a lot more ska in the 80s than they did in the 90s they they introduced like this concept of like really you can play every, everything with ska and and they were such so good at every genre that it, it worked well um in argentina you had los fabulosos cadillacs who really kind of were one of the first like bands in latin america to play ska and and mix those elements with it and they went on to be a really big band by the 90s Operation Ivy, obviously, they were punks first, and they kind of showed that ska could be played by punks and be treated as a punk subgenre, even though it isn't. It, but they they treated it like that. Tokyo Ska Paradise Orchestra started in the Mm -hmm. late '80s in Japan. They mixed all kinds of really cool elements with ska, and they're like, they're a level of musicianship that I've never seen of any ska band ever. Like I saw them uh, last year at Supernova and. It was mind blowing. Like they're just, they were perfect. Everything was absolutely perfect. Um, Hepcat kind of drew, drew on traditional ska. You know, the Buster's from Germany, they kind of did like kind of skinhead reggae ska stuff. Suicide Machines, you know, Against All Authority were like a great ska or a great punk ska band. Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, like mixed hardcore metal ska. Um, you know, I could go on and on and on. But my point is like, this is not a singular line. This is like a web that blew up from yeah. two tone. Ultimately. I mean, yes, some of these bands start later than others. And fishbone is a huge, very influential band on everything that came after it. But ultimately ska just kind of went in every direction. So that's why I don't really like to say third wave because it doesn't, it didn't really happen like a wave. It happened like, yeah. And it's, you know, it's still the case today. Like, you know, Bands, there's new bands forming and, and what, what is informing their style of ska? It could be anything. And, you know, more bands now mix ska with emo, for instance, which wasn't a big mm-hmm. thing in the nineties, but, you know, a lot of them grew up when ska and emo were both a thing. And so now that's their sort of ingredients. Now, the, the, the thing about all this is like what happened in the nineties in like 95 to 97 or so was real big fish, Safe Ferris, you know, less than Jake. Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Goldfinger, you know, these bands got on the radio. These bands sort of came to represent ska. Uh, But they're primarily bands that are mixing pop, punk, and ska. Mm -hmm. So it's a very um, singular perspective of ska. And I think that was good for marketing to kids in the 90s on MTV, but it's bad for people who think that You know, think of Scott as like, well, it's just this one thing and it's like kind of a superficial thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without my friend who dug into it a little bit more deeply, uh, I never would have discovered Moon Records, for example. You know, I Mm -hmm. had one friend who got really into it because he played bass and he was like really amazed by the bass playing in some of the ska that he was listening to. So he kept digging into it, found this entirely other world. And then you had things like Hellcat Records um, start to put out records by bands like, you know, Dave Hilliard and The Rocksteady Studies 7 and yeah. Hepcat and bands like that. Um, so you know, it's a really interesting way that it found people like me who were very into the no effects, bad religion, Pennywise world, and then the way that Scott infiltrated. Because when I found the suicide machines, destruction by definition, and battle hymns, and uh, Link 80 uh, on Asian Man Records. like Those were the sounds with the speed and the tempo and the aggression that looped in the sky that made me see like, oh, these worlds are so much more blended than I ever gave them credit for. And that's really what drew me in is finding the bands that had the speed and the aggression that I was used to and sought out, out, but then seeing those other record labels that kind of bridged that gap for me. I loved
1: it. Hellcat's so interesting because... That's Tim Armstrong's label. And, you know, Tim Armstrong with Rancid, they had Time Bomb, huge hit. One of the major sort of ska, you know, it's a subsidiary of Epitaph. Every single ska record that was released on Hellcat is awesome. Yeah. And, and none of them were mainstream. <laughs> the, the Gadgets, <laughs> that Gadgets record yeah. that
0: came out. Holy smokes. Unbelievable. Um, Well, Aaron, you're on the second edition now.
1: Of yes. in defense
0: of Ska, the book, right? I have my here's my first edition right here uh, with mm. the original cover with uh you know the the Gilman Street, and I even have a signed copy that that I got whenever the book first came out. And you know, looking back over the the three years since the first edition of this book came out, I'm wondering what like some of your fondest memories of putting all the pieces of the book together are like. As you, if you're feeling reflective and nostalgic uh, as you move towards the next iteration and edition of the book, what are you looking back on? as Some of your fondest memories of getting it all together in the first place?
1: The f- for the first edition or the second edition?
0: Well, we can do the first edition first, and then if you want to talk about the second, <laughs> we can.
1: Well, my most my my fondest memory of putting the first edition together was getting to go to Mexico. Mm. I um I went to Mexico in. It would be 2019. So I had been I'd been working on a chapter about ska scene in Mexico. Actually where that started was I um back you go back to 2015, I had written an article for Playboy about LA's Latino ska scene. Mm. And um I was aware of that because Eddie from Voodoo Gol Schools told me about it. He's like he's like I was talking to him at Gilman, we're, we're friends, you know, we know each other. Okay. And he was just telling me, he's like, you know, you'd be blown away. If you see what's going on in East LA right now, it, it's out of control. It's so big and they have their own bands like local bands and they're doing super well. Uh, they have these big festivals there. Is it and Sky I was like, Wars festival? Yeah. Sky Wars. Awesome. And, so he told me that and and the thing about voodoo is that since they're they're a primarily latino band from riverside they're not like that wasn't their scene per se but they all love voodoo and they all kind of made them sort of an honorary member of that scene yeah um and they also a fun fact about voodoo gold Schools, they released a all spanish version of their second record yeah Baila Baila de los locos no 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 the first record uh, ferme they oh, just released they a Spanish version of Fairmate. Like, so they, that was their first record on uh, Epitaph, right? Yes. Yeah. And then like, it was like 95, I think. And so then the next year, 96, they's like, here's the Spanish version. Um, But like, you didn't really see that. Like you didn't see right. like Spanish punk or Spanish alternative kind of hitting that market at all. I mean, even like Oso Motley didn't like put out their first record for a few years after that. So... That's a little sidebar. It. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so anyways, like I uh, I kind of looked into it a little bit more and I had like a connection at Playboy. I had just started writing, uh, some, you know, freelancing there and I, I pitched the article to the editor. He's like, that sounds awesome. And uh, I was, I went down to Sky Wars and uh, it was like, yeah, about three, I would say about 3,000 people. It was at a park in East LA, uh, very DIY, but huge. You know, I'd never seen a local diy scene just so vibrant and like the thing that really struck me about it was that it was really filled with young people it wasn't a bunch of old people who grew up with this music (laughs) and they're still supporting it 20 years later but you know i mean bless the old people like myself that do that uh it was a bunch of young people and they were so into it and they knew all the lyrics to these local bands and they were just dancing like crazy anyways I'm working on my book late, you know, a couple of years later and I'm like, well, I gotta, I gotta have a chapter about that scene and go deeper into that scene. It's so cool. And I'm talking to Clemente Ruiz, who's like the main person who I interviewed for the article. And by the way, Clemente told me when, when that article came out, I was like, you're the first person to cover this scene that really got it right. You know? And I was like, that, that's, I feel so honored that you say that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not from that area, but I guess I under- maybe it's because I understand ska. So maybe that's why, mm. um, so I was I was starting an interview again for about for the book, and he's like, you know, you gotta you gotta go to Mexico. You gotta see what's happening in Mexico because it is crazy in Mexico. There's festivals happening in Mexico City with like twenty thousand plus people, and I'm like, okay, I'm I just, I'm I, I'm down. Let's go. I'm and so going. He, yeah. So he's like, I'll let you know when there's like a, a good festival coming up. And so you know, I'm working. I'm getting my book done. It's actually getting close to when I need to turn in my book. And so he's like, okay, so there's this festival in Oaxaca. It's not the epicenter of the scene, but a lot of the primary bands are playing there. So, I would recommend you just go to that one, you know. It's not it's not the 20,000 uh, people Mexico City shows, but you're going to get a sense of it. And I was like, okay, so I me and um I brought my friend Alex who was the singer for my band in the 90s and we went it was at like this football field. It was like two stages, one on either side. There was probably like 10,000, maybe eight to 10,000 people there. And like, Jeez. because of Clemente, he got me, you know, he talked to them and like got me so I can go backstage and, and talk to the bands and everything. And I'm talking to like this organizer guy there. And he's like, ah, oh, this is, um, this is kind of small, but you know, it's our first time doing this. So hopefully, hopefully we'll get a little momentum and kind of make this a little bigger. <laughs> I was like, this is small. Are you serious? <laughs> man so you got to do some travel have some
0: unexpected experiences were those things were those experiences like in east la and mexico pretty shocking for you to just see like how vibrant the genre was still going in certain parts of the world that a lot of people aren't paying attention to
1: yeah i think i mean at this point i'm kind of used to it but yeah, at the time i think it was surprising and i think what what's interesting about it the thing that struck me the most about it is like you go to different countries You go to different areas, there's different cultures, but it's like kind of the same. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. kids are, you know, they dance a little different, but it's kind of the same, similar energy, the way they're dressing, kind of the way they're acting at a show. It's like, it really kind of like being in Mexico really made me realize how it's like, we all love the same thing. Like Mm -hmm. kids in Mexico at these shows, me as a kid going to these shows, like we're, we're getting the same thing out of it. Like it's, it really does like just, it is like this universal thing. Yeah. You know, let's uh, dive into a little
0: bit of details about the second edition. I'm wondering yeah. what was cool or challenging specifically about doing a second edition of a book, because you know, what doing a first edition of a book is hard enough in and of itself revisiting updating, revising something that's been out for a couple of years has got to be just a a brand new kind of challenge. And I'm just curious about what that was like for you.
1: I would say my biggest challenge with this was um, knowing if I was, if this was the right place to put my energy and wondering where the line is, like, am I putting too much time into this? Am I, am I going a little too obsessive with this? Like some of those thoughts were definitely a kind of in the back of my mind as I was moving forward, because I ended up going kind of deep into what I, how I revised it. Like, I mean, mm. some people might be like, oh, I did it, I gave it a new copy edit and I added a, a thing at the end, new edition, new cover. You know, that, that might, I, that might be how most people approach it. I didn't approach it that way. I approached it by, I went through and I re-edited every single chapter and I looked into each chapter and I said, is there anything missing that I can add and in some cases I added a section and in some cases I added a sentence mm. <laughs> you know what i mean i went a little overboard with it um i did, i do, i would might i might do a new interview for a section cuz i'm like this could really use this and then i wrote this whole extra chapter at the end which is kind of a long chapter but it's really like a collection of chapters but i just called it one chapter and overall there's like 30,000 more words in this book than the first edition. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay, well you just really reignited my excitement <laughs> cuz all I've seen from this <laughs> book so far, you sent me the digital edition, but yeah. it it doesn't have the same uh, you know, power if you co- if you hold a first edition book sure. and then you have the second edition in your hand right next to it to kind of like give them the physical comparison. So you just reignited my my curiosity in edition number two because this was my my summer beach book when the first edition came out i read this on the beach overlooking lake erie just south of buffalo in the middle of the summer and it was my 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 beach read you know so i'm now i'm excited because i'll have a new beach read um for the summer of 2024 where i reinvestigate uh my my ska yes. knowledge
1: Oh, one of the funny things about it is like, I went through and like each, you know, all the chapters, like I was saying, and I, I would kind of think about it and research or maybe set up some interviews, or maybe I would dig deep in some articles and fill out some stuff. But also what's going on at the same time is I'm doing this podcast Yeah, and every episode of the podcast I'm doing is expanding my knowledge. And sometimes it directly affects like, Oh, this chapter here. I just talked to so-and-so, and he really kind of broadened my understanding of this specific thing I wrote about. And that would inform, and I would just use that. I would just be like, oh, okay, so here, I could fill out this section a little bit more. And maybe I'd talk to that person and be like, hey, I'm doing this, or do you have anything else to add? And it's it worked out great. and But it also led to a couple really, to me, really funny little additions. um, Because the podcast, we bring on so many people outside of Ska. Mm-hmm. and every once in a while they have such an interesting little take on the scene so i used a quote and with their permission i used a quote from john darniel yep and i used a quote from kyle kanane nice i would never have reached out to these people to get an interview for this book it would have made no sense but they had a couple funny quotes that i just felt were so good so with john darniel i was i did have a chapter where i'm going down the list of like this is sort of the this is what's happening in the main in the nineties when Scott's blowing up in the mainstream. And I'm kind of listing out the bands who are blowing up what their singles were, blah, blah, blah. John Darnielle on our episode had a really great quote about Goldfinger's song, Superman. Nice. So Love that song I, used, I used his quote for that. And then, um, with Kyle Canane, he came from Chicago. He grew up going to fireside. He grew up going to slapstick shows. And, um, he had like a really funny quote about how a uh, fireside bowl or the, all the punk shows were, was like this little tiny space with no stage and everybody crowded in there. And he had to see mm-hmm. on this whole rant about how, like, he always felt worried, like a mother, like someone was going to hit their face with the trombone and blah, blah, blah. You know? So I use that quote uh, in there too. It was just like add a little color, but it's like, it must be really funny if someone reading it, they're like, Oh, here's the story of Slapstick and Fireside. And here's a quote from Kyle Kinane for some random reason. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Well, and I've been to uh, Fireside myself, and uh, it's a really bizarre place. If anybody out there listening ever goes to Chicago and you're on Fullerton in Chicago and you see the Fireside Bowl, you should go in there and try to process having massive punk shows there because uh, it's such a bizarre space uh, to have shows but for anybody out there listening who doesn't know who John Darneil is he's a best selling novelist and also the singer and songwriter for a band called the Mountain Goats which are extremely prolific and Kyle Kinane is a very funny comedian so um definitely some nice little shout outs there did you, so you mind the podcast interviews or oh, yeah. oh, additions yeah. to the book
1: yeah i mean i i didn't sit and listen to every episode but i sent and like went through you know my feed and i was like okay this person, what did we talk about in this, in this episode? And I would kind of think about it and I maybe scrub through it and I'd be like, Oh, okay, there's some stuff here, you know? And I, yeah, I I literally went through each episode, you know, at least considering what would be potentially helpful. That
0: is amazing. Cause you know, at 180 episodes or so of the podcast now with more, many more in the works, you're, you have a, a gold mine. Of information that you could have drawn from for this book, so I'm just delighted to hear that you did because the podcast mm-hmm. is an entity in and of itself that is like just so complimentary of the book that uh you know so like seeing the podcast as well is like wow this is so deep you know mm-hmm. thank you yeah um you know something that stands out to me a lot is, as a genre is how representative of society so much of ska actually is. The book is extremely diverse. It's multiracial. It's very in sexual orientation throughout the book. And, you know, growing up, going to punk shows in the 90s and early 2000s, a lot of ska is very much in stark contrast to the 90s punk that I remember growing up and seeing. But in ska and punk were so much in tandem and. I would like see punk bands like, you know, preaching like unity and things like that from the stage. But then when you look at who is on stage at punk shows, like I would go see a five band bill and it would be all white, all male for the entire night. Ska seems different. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have any specific comments in, in relation to, uh, to my observations about the diversity within Ska, uh, I don't care if you talk about how it compares to punk, um, but I'm curious about your observations of that as well. After having done all this research for the book and the podcast,
1: well, I'll say the first thing that struck me about that Skank and Pickle show wasn't necessarily that. I mean, Skank and Pickle was a band that had an Asian American male as one of the main one of the main singers, and then their guitarist was an openly openly gay woman. Uh, I'm not. That wasn't the first thing that struck me about the band. What struck me first was that the audience was diverse, and I and mm-hmm. and by diverse I mean like came from different worlds. Mm-hmm. Like you'd see metalheads, you'd see kind of you know weird hippies, you'd see all kinds of people. Like I think seeing how welcoming Scott was and how like there wasn't this sort of like uniform, and this this was true for Scott Punk. there, there you, we can get into a discussion about what. The traditional Scott scene was like in the 90s, and that's a little different. But this Scott Punk scene in the 90s was like super welcoming and like very inviting, and kind of like in contrast to some of the other shows I'd been to that were kind of scary. Like I was really into Primus mm-hmm. and um their audience was kind of scary. Like, yeah. I don't know why exactly that's the case because it's kind of since they're such a weird goofy band, but It was like they were kind of. It was intimidating as like as a little kid, you know, who wasn't doesn't wasn't violent or didn't have like this violent urge that you needed to express. I was like, I love this music, but God, I feel weird being here. Being at the ska shows were like not like that at all. It didn't feel violent. It didn't feel aggressive. It didn't feel like gatekeepy at all. It was just like everyone's welcome. It's fun. It's kind. People, you were making friends with people just because they were there, um, I don't know. So that was, the, I would say that was the first thing that struck me about ska, going to ska in like the early mid nineties. In terms of diversity, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I understand a lot more about the diversity now. And I think I began to understand that more as I was becoming a fan is that if you look at the bands and you look at the audience and you compare that to other genres of that time, there were more people of color in those bands and and in the audience than there were in a lot of other like rock-oriented alternative subgenres at that time i mean like i said earlier skank and pickle mike park was an asian american man um there wasn't a lot of like asian american people in punk really at the time um lynette was was an open lesbian and Mm -hmm. i didn't i grew up in a christian home i didn't have much experience with the interacting with or gay people i guess and the church i grew up with the the church i grew up in was very homophobic very anti-gay and while i wouldn't say i was committed to those ideas i definitely probably had negative biases as a young person having been grown up that way but i know i know having been a fan of skank pickle and having become friends with them and getting to know lynette i'm sure that factored in hugely to me seeing that seeing homophobia as a very bad thing
0: yeah yeah you know if i wouldn't i've talked about this on one of my other podcasts a lot but if i hadn't found certain songs that framed social issues in a particular way um it's very very likely that i would have gone down a really dark path because of some of the friendship groups that i was associated with in Mm -hmm. middle school who were into some of the uh, darker aspects of like what was going on in metal, for example, you know? So it's, I, I blame, I blame, I credit music so much for for helping me uh, learn about stuff like that in the world. It really opened my eyes in ways that school
1: teachers never really were capable of, you know? Yeah, me too. I mean, not only was uh, going to ska shows, but also, you know, going to DIY punk shows and sort of when I was doing Flat Planet being part of that sort of DIY punk scene, because we would do tours and, and play these like basement shows. And you would uh, get to meet all these people in these scenes in different cities that like exposed me to like a totally different world than this very religious home that I grew up in. And, and you know, what's interesting is that it took me until I was in my early 20s before I had like confronted the fact that I was not a Christian I mm-hmm. kind of like, I kind of existed in this space for a while where I was like, I guess I'm Christian, but you know, whatever. And I was a little bit loosey goosey with it. um But I, I felt like when I was in my early twenties, I had to confront it. I had to sort of decide, do I believe this? Is this, is this who I am or not? And one of those things I felt like kind of came to my head was the idea that I did not feel anything negative towards people who were homosexual. And that I was consistently Mm -hmm. told that I was supposed to. And Mm. even though I'm a straight, I'm a straight man, I'm not personally like, it's not something part of my personal identity, but I felt so perturbed by that particular point of view that I just felt like I can't, I can't buy into this. Yeah, it It, resonates. Um,
0: You know, you mentioned cities. I grew up in St. Louis, a city with a rich Ska past Some of the bands that I was, um, you know, exposed to where we had an unexpectedly strong ska scene were obviously the mighty MU330, uh, Mm. Orange Orange Tree, who derived from MU330, a band called the Rabies, also that splintered off of MU330, but also smaller bands, Fat Cactus, Jimmy Got Hustled, the Scholars. Murder City Players, Radioactive Bananas, Secret Cajun Band. There was a lot in St. Louis. And so, you know, I'm sure that you found some places that probably had some unexpected surprises as well. You've already mentioned East L.A. and the unexpected surprises there. And in Mexico, were there any other cities that you kind of dug into where, because, uh, I mean, we had a Sky Festival, sky rama every year at Casa Loma Ballroom. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm wondering if you had any unexpected surprises as far as like really cool ska scenes in uh, in the country that, uh, you know, stand out to you.
1: Uh, one city that I was totally unaware of having such a vibrant ska scene before I started my book is uh, Long Island. Mm. I have no, I have no connection to Long Island. I grew up in California, but I, I did a chapter on Jeff Rosenstock, uh, discussing his ska roots. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Arrigan I also arrogant did... sons of bitches, right? Arrogant sons of bitches. And, uh, I also did a separate, there's a section in a different chapter where I'm talking about, um, you know, people having ska roots, people that are not ska that have ska roots and how that's been dealt with in culture. Right. So one of the main people I interviewed for that chapter was Dan Deacon, who is like a, you know, became a pretty popular, pretty cool, like electronic artist, but mm-hmm. he played in a ska band for a number of years before that called channel 59. So nice, which was awesome. Anyways, both of these people are from Long Island. And so I inadvertently was learning about Long Island scene through trying to set up Jeff Rosenstock's Ska years and through setting up Dan Deacon's Ska years. And I dove a little deeper into that uh, with the second edition, just seeing how pe- many people brought it up on the podcast. Like if they if they came from that area, it's like, oh, Long Island was amazing. You know, we had, they had a venue called Deja One where it was just like Ska shows every week. They had um, sort of, they had like these sort of different generations of ska bands, like um, what is the main, uh, Skaflaws were like one of the older bands, and they're Mm -hmm. a very cool band, Um, kind of, you know, I don't know if I would call them, they're not really traditional, but it's definitely more recognizably jazzy ska stuff, right? And they were around the scene. Those are like guys that started in the late 80s, but then you have bands like, you know, Jeff's Band or Channel 59 and all these other bands too, who are like, Kind of like crazy kid energy, uh, and they're all kind of sort of coexisting together. Brian, uh, Brian Diaz from Edna's Goldfish, that's another band from that from that scene, that era. So, anyways, I, I learned all about that scene. <laughs> uh, there's Man. a there's a guy named Sean McCabe who uh is was in a band called Premarital sax who I become oh, friends with. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Best Scott pun band yeah. name ever. Um, no, he's he's a friend and he like really for the second edition, he just like gave me the details about Long Island scene so I could really fill it in for the mostly the Dan Deacon chapter. Um, like, so I, that was pretty fun. To, that's fun to find that stuff out, you know, because you always hear uh, Orange County is the one you always hear about because of that's where like a lot of the bands that blew up came from. And it was a vibrant scene, but those those scenes existed all over the country. I love it. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, friends, too. And this
0: book has led to some new friendships for you. I know, for example, I never would have found you if you had not written a chapter about uh, Chris Hanna and the band Propagandy from Winnipeg, Manitoba, writing a song called Ska Sucks, which you featured in the chapter. So I know you've made other friendships as well. One of my favorite chapters in the book is the way you incorporate a fan from Germany. A very cool story about a fan in Germany who collects obscure ska demos from the 90s. And mm-hmm. that story has stuck with me since the first day I read the book. Because to me, the way that you tie in fans is so important because it's like an exemplary uh, way that of non-gatekeeping, right? Not only do you talk to people in bands, not only do you talk to people who have record labels, but you talk to people who just love the music. And, you know, I'm wondering about some of your favorite relationships or opportunities that you've managed to cultivate for relationships uh, stemming directly from, you know, making the book, doing the podcast. What are some of your favorite like friendships?
1: Well, you know, like my story is like a fan story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did play so in a band. You're you're it. Yeah. I was a fan of Skank and Pickle and I started writing fan letters to them. And the person who dealt with fan letters in Pickle* was Mike Park. And so mm. him and I became friends through me first writing letters saying, I love you guys. But I also, um, I went out on my way to write weird fan letters because I had this assumption that they're getting all these letters and like, they probably don't read them or they probably throw them away. So I got to stand out somehow. And so I just wrote <laughs> these crazy letters and they, they, they just, they went on for pages. And then Mike at one point, you know, he would write back, but then at one point he's just like, give me a call. Here's my phone number. And we started talking on the phone. We started hanging out, but he later told me that the reason he gave me his phone number is because he didn't want to have to read my long letters. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. But yeah, yeah, I mean, other, otherwise I would say like, you know, I've gotten to know, I would say the people that I have interviewed for the book or the podcast that I've become friends with in a more meaningful way are almost always like the ska bands you know, we bring on people outside of ska and super friendly interviews and, and, and that kind of stuff. And I I might chat with them here and there a little bit outside of the interview. Like I've had a, like we had John Ross, John Ross Bowie on the show from Big uh, Bing Bang Theory. And, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've chat with him a little bit since the interview. Like when, when we, when we did, um, Bill Stevenson, Bill Stevenson came on the podcast and he, uh, he had this whole thing about where he, uh, has this whole stretch that he does and he sent <laughs> yeah. us a video after the fact showing us the stretch yeah and and i just i don't know i was like i bet john would love this because he's a big like pop punk fan and i sent it to him and we like he laughed and we talked about it for a little bit Um but that kind of stuff you know that's that's friendly but like the ska bands like whether i knew them back in the day or kind of knew them back in the day or didn't know them at all back in the day we're all becoming like much better friends like like the guys from Muster plug for instance like Pretty good friends with them now, but I, I I didn't really know them personally back then. I was just a fan back then. Yeah, and I think they all like really respect what I what I'm doing and what what Adam and I are doing with the podcast.
0: Well, let's talk about Adam. Uh, the podcast uh, just started um, before the book came out, as you mentioned, taking on a life of its own. Um, Adam Davis, your co-host, is the guitarist. Was the guitarist on one of my all time favorite bands, Link Eighty. And now is the singer for the almighty Omnigon, Mm -hmm. whose record, No Faith, I have right here from Bad Time Records, an amazing record label doing fantastic ska right now. And I've got it on very gorgeous blue vinyl. Um, Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Adam Davis doing doing the podcast, because it's it's so special. When I listen to the podcast, it's like, here's my time with uh, with you guys, you know, and it, it means a lot for listeners.
1: Well, we first met in high school. He's a f- couple years younger than me, but, and I don't remember specifically how we met. Uh, he says that we met at a um, Cure show, um, which I know I remember him. I remember him being at the Cure show, and I remember talking to him. I don't remember if that was, in fact, the first time we met, but we'll just take Adam's word for it. That's when the first yeah. time we met. Cure played at a San Jose... Uh, God, it was this gigantic arena. I had no idea the cure were that big. <laughs> um, this was uh right when they had that um the right wish came out. So yeah. Mm. Everyone, everyone that I know knew that was into cool music was at that show. So Adam and I apparently met at that show. And um we were I don't know that we were close friends, you know, we were we were within the group of people that were friends or friendly with each other. Um he and I I started a band after Flat planet called Fashion Police, which mm-hmm. was a bit of a reaction to band stuff. It was like a we're gonna make a band do just weird songs and just be a little bit on the performance art side of things be confrontational, have no intention of making this band be anything. It was kind of like an, a cathartic out, outlet for us and Adam was we tapped Adam to be in the band as the guitarist and um i don't remember after that i know we kept in touch um we eventually started our own band like in like 2008 or 2009 called narboots Mm -hmm. which was um kind of similar it was more but it was a it was done in a in a less like aggressive way it was like kind of confrontational and kind of like weird and theatrical we did that for right up until about 2018 we have we haven't really done anything since he started doing omnigon and i was i got i was really heavy into my book so i just kind of didn't really have a lot of time and there hasn't been much like impetus to start again although we do talk about it every once in a while but definitely through the narboots years him and i became like much much closer friends and and to, to the point where we now like jokingly refer to the podcast as like the new season of narboots Perfect.
0: <laughs> well, if I can blow your mind here real quick. Uh I don't know if you know that I have this, but I have 1 of 5 of the Narboots test pressings. Wow. Here is my here's my number 3 of 5 test pressing from Narboots's album titled album mm-hmm. and it's signed by Mike Park with my little certificate of authenticity. Uh mm-hmm. but I have the uh the Narboots um one of the five test pressings that I got directly from Mike a couple of years ago. So there's my my mind-blowing Gnar Boots uh, edition. And I I knew I had to have that ready because I knew that
1: Gnar Boots was going to come up. And I was like, I got to show you and I had the test pressing. <laughs> That's amazing. The funny thing is that album is like basically just punk rock songs, right? It's
0: great. Yeah, I just listened to it today. I had this uh, test pressing on no more than two hours ago in my house. Uh, and, you know, I just had to tell you, I had to show you that because I knew you'd love it.
1: But the band, like, pretty much after that became an electronic band yeah like we just would play electronic backing tracks on our ipod and we would sing uh you know adam and i with uh our long extended mics i don't know we didn't want to go wireless for whatever reason and (laughs) you know we would sing in the audience but yeah it's we moved away from actual guitar bass drum punk uh you know pretty quick
0: (laughs) yeah well, my favorite episodes—I've listened to not all, but many, many, many of your episodes—and I just wanted to tell you some of my favorite podcast episodes. So, if anybody out there is listening, uh, is curious, where do I start with *In Defense of Sky*? Here's my personal list: uh, anything right. involving Mike Park is yes. wonderful. Um, the episode with Matt bettinelli Open from Link 80, who is also now a major Hollywood director who is uh, attached to the Scream franchise. That episode was amazing. Barry Johnson from Joyce Manor. Loved it. Steve Choi from Rx Bandits. Brendan Kelly from Slapstick, the Lawrence Arms, and the Broadways. Uh, Kamala Parks, who is an absolutely legendary figure in punk and uh, venue management and booking and everything that people might not know. Reed
1: Wolcott. Uh, uh, And Kamala is like uh, a a really important name in terms of the history of Gilman specifically. I should have that in there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Reed Wolcott, We Are The Union, Laura Jane Grace from Against Me, Jane Navarro from The Suicide Machines, Dan Potts from MU330, Brad Logan from Leftover Crack, Angelo Moore, uh, who I know was most likely an insanely special interview for you considering your Mm -hmm. adoration uh, and love of Fishbone. Rory from the Impossibles, Rory Phillips from the Impossibles and the Stereo, who went on to become come on my podcast after coming on your podcast. Um, but a few more that I really love is the Blue Meanies, John Darneal, Beto and Soundclash, Joe Gettleman, Dan Ozzy, and this one, the abrupters from Buffalo, New oh, York. Yeah. your neighbors. Because, because <laughs> they are my neighbors. I love the abrupters from Buffalo and we and, mentioned you. Yeah. And, and I get talked about on that podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it was an amazing story. And so those are some of my favorite. Um, and I'm wondering if you had any other ones that you're like off the top of my head, these are a few of my favorites that I'm just like, so blown away that I got to do.
1: Well, Fred Armisen is a guest that we've had. That was pretty amazing. It was really amazing just how, um, friendly and gracious he was. Yeah. And, uh, he was, and he did not rush us. You know, we did a long interview. We did some bonus stuff for that too. And he was oh, totally fine with that. You know, that, yeah. um, That was a fun interview. Um, One of my all-time favorites, and it's kind of uh, a little outside of what we normally do, but it will always probably be my number one interview is Tim Capello, the saxophone player from uh, the film, The Lost Boys. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Tim Capello he's like, you know, the sexy sex man, that's become a thing. Right. And it's, it's been a parody of his moment of that film. I, I had a connection to him from like, I was some of my journalism that I do. And I was like, Oh man, I would love to have like a really long interview with him. I don't think he has any connection to ska, but who cares? I just want to yeah. talk to him. And so we, we brought him on and he did. He's like, I don't know anything about ska. I'm like, that's fine. I just want to hear your stories. Cause I heard some of his stories. He's got some incredible stories and we brought him on, and then for the first half hour, he's talking with just encyclopedia knowledge about um, Jamaican ska. <laughs> I'm like you don't know anything about ska. <laughs> sure. Um, wow. But then it's like we tell tell his stories, and you know he used to play with. Uh, well, his main gig was Tina Turner. He played with Tina Turner for a long time, and Whoa. and this is like Tina Turner at her absolute commercial peak, right? Unbelievable. All through the eighties, yeah when he did the lost boys in the early nineties, he was like, had a couple day break from touring with Tina Turner. So to him, that was just like this little weird little thing he did. And then he's back to his real job, but it's sort of the thing that became like identifying him in in the current time. He played with Carly Simon. He played Peter Gabriel. He did like a comedy thing with Billy crystal. So he's just got rock and roll stories for days. Jeez. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Well, And Fred Armisen too. Going back to that, Fred Armisen has been super active in music. He just wrote like the intro to the recent uh, No Means No biography that came oh, did out he? recently. Wow. Yeah. So Fred Armisen, I'm glad to hear that uh, he's 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 just a music fan. He just seems to love music and just love talking about it. So I'm I'm loving that you had a great time with Fred and that he didn't uh, that he didn't rush you through the interview to get to the <laughs> other side for the next thing on his schedule for the day. Yeah. Are you familiar Very with cool. Fred's
1: band? A little bit. 90s, Trench, yeah. mouth, right? Trench Mouth, right? Trenchmouth, Mouth, yeah. They, cool. um, they're they very much in the vein of Fugazi, but I would say they're actually a little bit more, have a little bit more ska, reggae, dub elements than even Fugazi.
0: Yeah. So. Well, and I loved in the book where uh, Mike Park from Skank and Pickle and Asian Man Records says that F- Skank and Pickle could have been the Fugazi of ska because I couldn't say that I disagreed with that either. And I liked that that was included in the book too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Skank and awesome. Pickle were uh, a very, very do-it-yourself band. I mean, they had their, they ran their own record label. They released their own stuff. And the thing about Skank and Pickle, and I, I think I made this point a few times in the book, is that they're not really remembered too much by people who weren't part of that at this point because yeah. they didn't have songs on the radio. Um, a lot of their records, I don't think, are as good as some of their contemporaries in terms of recording and stuff like that. But at the time, they were like probably one of the biggest bands mm-hmm. like skank and pickle would play to a 1, thousand 1500 people on tour, totally independent band releasing their own records, just building this fan base up all on their own. And mm-hmm. I would say mighty, mighty Bostones might've been the only band. You know, this is before those bands were on the radio. Mighty, mighty Boston's had a huge fan base before they had a hit single. I'd say mighty, mighty Boston's was probably the only ska band that was eclipsing them at that by the time Skeket Pickle broke up in like 95. Wow.
0: Amazing. Um, You know, the second edition you mentioned earlier, I want to talk just a little bit more about that. Um, It contains that chapter at the very end where uh, Patrick Stump from uh, Fallout Boy uh, Mm -hmm. comes in there and kind of talks a little bit about Ska. but it's a brand new chapter. Like, what was that writing process like for that uh, that brand new edition that went into the book that didn't complement the other chapters, but is it just a brand new standalone thing for the second edition?
1: Well, one of the things that inspired me to do this second edition, there was a couple things, but one of them was uh, addressing some of the things that either I felt personally was missing, or I was hearing from other people that said was missing. Yeah, and so I was putting together just a couple different things. And one of the, one of the things that I noticed that they were all sort of connected to was that they were addressing a lot of what was happening after ska fell out of main, the mainstream. So ska kind of peaked in like 97, 98. It's starting to go down by early two thousands. It's considered a dead genre. Yeah, but it's not. It's not actually dead. It's like it's kind of gone into the underground a bit, right? And so in the last few years you're starting to see a little bit more like some of the bands that are happening right now, like cat bite or we Are the union or bad operation kill Lincoln. Mm-hmm. These bands are, they're not in the mainstream, but they are starting to get outside of the ska bubble. And so people outside of ska are starting to notice them. Yeah. So there's kind of been a conversation about like ska's back or, you know, is there a, is there a new ska revival or a new ska wave happening? So these conversations are happening now, and so I wanted. I, I found that I was talking a lot about the period between the early two thousands to the present time, and so I, I called it the lost years because yeah. it's like, whatever. It's it's maybe it's the dead period, maybe it's the underground period. What what is it? You know, but it it and so I, I this chapter goes through all sorts of little scenes or little moments that really illustrate where ska was was at during these times. And in many cases, I think that there's a vibrancy to it. And and in a lot of cases, I think it really exemplifies community because it's all very community oriented. And I think ska has always been like a community oriented music. And when it became a mainstream genre, I think that's part of some of the disconnect and some of the struggle that it's always had is because Really, it's a community genre. Mm-hmm. And when it's like put in this sort of MTV space, it, it really kind of has a, there's like a really uncomfortable thing about that where this music comes from everybody sharing, everybody working together, everybody building it, everybody getting something from it, not really rock starness, right? I mean, it's true to some degree with punk, but I think punk punk's history is a little different and i think mm-hmm. they've sort of worked it out and they've kind of created their own different tiers of what punk is and there's all kinds of arguments about what's punk and is punk the music is punk the attitude you know scott i don't know scott's a little different to me i think that 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 community spirit is has been a the lifeblood of it so the lost years really shows different s- scenes of that community life but over the years you know fabulous. there's like um like there's a traditional LA ska scene in the early 2000s with um, Blue Beat Lounge by Chris Murray. There's the Brooklyn rocksteady scene in the early 2010s. Uh, the band The Frighteners came from that. Um, what else was there? I, I talk a little bit even about the Christian ska scene in particular. I'm interested in uh, Five Iron Frenzy and sort of their yeah. return, their return in 2013 because uh, because of the na- the nature of them being a pretty overtly leftist band. Mm-hmm. Who are Christians? I think they had a pretty significant impact on a lot of like Christian kids, and their return was met with one of the uh, record-breaking Kickstarter. Uh, wow! Which was you know that record was broken by someone else like a uh, not long after, but at the time they broke a, re- a Kickstarter because they have they were so meaningful to so many kids who grew up in the church. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about Big D and sort of the impact they had in the in the late two thousands, being a band who. Wasn't really mainstream, but I maybe the closest of the ska punk bands to came out host the '90s boom. Yeah, um and I talk about sort of bad time records and these bands and kind of where where they came from and what they came from because there's a lot of factors that led to these bands having a more successful period right now. Awesome. Well, Aaron, I'm so delighted. Uh, with our
0: correspondence of the last couple of years, uh, what you and Adam have been doing over at In Defense of Ska and just talking about podcasting kind of behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, working towards this uh, second di- edition of the book, it was super exciting to me whenever uh, you told me that you were doing this. I am so happy that I get to be the one to bring this conversation to uh, to the world, um, to feature this book on, uh, on the network and everything. And I'm wondering if you can just... Uh, Tell listeners where to go, what to check out, if they want to follow along, um, see what you're doing, and uh, you know, see what see what you and Adam get up to. But also, just anything you want to promote whatsoever, go ahead and shout it out.
1: Well, the my the second edition of my book comes out in October of 2024, but it, you can pre order it right now. And mm-hmm. I ask kindly that if you uh, if you're interested in what I do and you you would support Scott, that you pre order it because it'll help. It'll help sales, it'll help the algorithms, you know, say that this is something to share with more people. Yeah. So, so go to clashbooks.com and uh, go to new books. You can pre-order it right there. Um, for the podcast, In Defense of Sky, you can get it wherever you get podcasts. Um, you can also uh, follow us on social media. We're on um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. The handle is at In Defense of Ska on all of those wonderful. Aaron Carnes, author of
0: In Defense of Ska, the first and second editions. Thank you so much for being here. It's
1: been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.